0: often we disconnect the work that policing and criminalization does from the work that is happening within the food system. But mostly the same communities that are impacted by over-policing are the same communities that are facing the kinds of surveillance that comes with gentrification, for example, or the kinds of food insecurity that people are impacted by on a daily basis.
1: I'm Tiffany Patton and this is Real Food Reads, the podcast from Real Food Media where we talk to authors of some of the most interesting books on the intersection of food, politics, and culture. Racism is part of the DNA of the U.S. food system, starting with the genocide of Native people for land and the enslavement of African people for labor. Because of this, racial justice and food justice should go hand in hand. This month's book of the month is Black Food Matters, Racial Justice in the Wake of Food Justice. Edited by Dr. Ashante M. Reese and Hannah Garth, this anthology shows us not just what is missing from black food spaces, but what black people are capable of creating in those spaces. These stories and case studies around the US examine what black food is and contextualizes these endeavors from farms to markets to restaurants within a long history of racial capitalism while showcasing what is possible. I got the chance to speak with Dr. Reese about the book, her work, and the links between abolition and food justice. Well, first, I want to say thank you so much again for joining us for Real Food Reads. Really excited that we are able to include um, Black Food Matters in this lineup. So thank you, Dr. Reese. Thank you for inviting me. I'd like to start by asking you, what sparked the creation of this book?
0: Um, I was as I was just thinking about this question, and I can't even pinpoint how long Hannah and I have been um, collaborators. But part of what started the process is that we would see each other at conferences. We were familiar with each other's work, and somewhere around maybe twenty sixteen or twenty seventeen, we started to collaborate on conference panels and presentations. And one of those, or two of those, actually were with the intent to create a book, although we didn't know quite yet what that book was gonna look like. But part, you know, there's, there's two things. One, we were both anthropologists, we were doing work within anthropology and we were noticing um, the interest in our work as anthropologists who were doing work on food in Black communities and Black spaces. Um, and then also we were noticing an opportunity, I will say, to publish more on critical, nuanced work um, related to Black folks and food, particularly within the social sciences more broadly and anthropology specifically. So we had these panels at conferences. We pulled together people from that, and then we put out an open call um, within communities of scholars who we knew were doing work on food in a lot of ways, food justice, food sovereignty, but also food culture, and we ended up with this collection of essays. One thing I I would like to say, and I want to give a big shout out to Hannah for this, is that at one point we did a workshop at the University of California in San Diego, which is where um, Hannah currently is, although she's moving institutions, and her department helped to sponsor bringing some of us together to do a writing workshop where we were able to sit and discuss each of our chapters together, and I think that was a very lovely process oh, that nice. extended our, our really deep belief in what collaboration can mean for this kind of
1: work. That's amazing uh, that it was such a collaborative process, and so my next question is going to be what was unique about the process of putting this anthology, mm-hmm. anthology together, and I feel like you already sort of answered that, but if there's anything else you'd like to add to what was unique yeah. about the process.
0: I I would love to add a couple more things. Um, The first is, so in academia, obviously there's so many spectrums of folks doing the work. There are people who are on tenure track. There are people who are tenured, senior, well-established scholars, some people who are just getting started and everywhere in between. One thing I'm really proud of about this collection is not only are the majority of the essays written by Black scholars, The majority of them are also written by scholars who were untenured at the time. And at least one of the chapters was written by someone who is currently not even in academia at all. And so I think that is really important um, just because we were also trying to bring together voices that, I I don't wanna say weren't getting heard. That's, That's not what I mean, but bring together voices that Um, were important but may not have been the ones that everyone in food studies would be privy of, if that makes sense. And so we're super duper proud of that. Um, We we talk about this in the introduction to that we were trying to put together a collection that was unapologetically about centering not just black people, but black ways of knowing and navigating the food system, black epistemologies and such. Mm-hmm. And so I'm also really, really proud of that.
1: Yeah. And that really came out throughout the whole book. I feel like in my time working in food, I've just seen so much research and discourse around how inequitable the food system is. And and luckily, especially lately, those inequities are being linked to the system and how it's linked to white supremacy. Um, Mm -hmm. and I feel like so much of it focuses on what's lacking and what this book exemplifies and what you argue is that there's so much more to Black food geographies than the anti-Blackness that is present, um, than the lack of investment. So what is missing from all of those analyses?
0: Yeah, I think one of the things we were really trying to get at is at some point we have to be able to hold things in tension together, both the systematic devaluing of black people, blackness more broadly, you know, these ways that blackness and things attached to blackness are continuously devalued by the state and other entities. While at the same time it is also true that there are things like food culture in particular that black folks we, we produce it all the time and it's it's connected to other things like joy and community building and family making. It just just a lot of things that are really good about looking at something singular like food, both through the lens of inequities, but not solely so. I always think, probably daily, I think a lot about a quote that I'm going to paraphrase from Christina Sharpe's book, In the Wake, where she says that while we're kind of vulnerable to the overwhelming force of anti-Blackness, we're not only known to ourselves or each other by that force of anti-Blackness. And I think that's what we wanted to try to get across in the book. Not only what can we learn about anti-Blackness, but what can we learn about what it means to survive or thrive in a world that really is literally counting on your non-survival? Mm-hmm.
1: This reminds me a lot of a conversation I had with a friend a few years ago. Um, we were talking about jazz music and he was telling me, you know, that jazz is created from constraint and like trying to express mm. freedom within those constraints. And, you know, Black people were like the creators of jazz. And so that just like really, really just made me, it made me cry a little bit just to think about yeah. that and how it relates just the Black experience in general is to try to create freedom and beauty within these constraints.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. To kind of evoke Christina Sharp again, she, Has this essay, beautiful essay. I may be butchering the title, but I'm pretty sure it's just Beauty as a Method. And in it, like she's really tracing this idea about how one carves a small path through the wake or the afterlife of slavery Mm -hmm. and beauty being a catalyst for those things. Like, even if it's in her case, he's just reflecting on some of the practices of her mother. And I think food is a lot like that, right? That, like, the world can be on fire in a lot of ways and we can be mourning in a lot of ways and something can change by sharing a meal with someone or preparing a meal for someone or just sharing a laugh with someone, right? So I think that there are these ways that we wanted to try to make sure that we were also uplifting these narratives of I don't write about or think about resilience. So that's not a word that I use, but maybe that's a word that resonates with people. Uh, But these narratives that are really about Black everyday life, because even even in the context of anti-Blackness, death and mourning, I think about the question, what survives? Who and what survives? And I think this volume was in part an exploration of us thinking through what is still here? Who is still here? And what are they doing to make lives?
1: Mm -hmm. So you say Black food geographies are shaped by memory, visions for self-reliance, and understanding of Black history as they are by supermarkets and restaurants. Mm -hmm. Can you share a story of how memory, vision, and understanding shape the landscape or the food geography?
0: So one example that comes to mind, I think this is in the book, although I actually don't know, because sometimes my examples kind of bleed with things that I remember from other parts of the work. But um, a longtime resident of Dean Wood, which is the neighborhood where I conducted a large part of my research, we were standing at her door, we were talking and across the street at the time was a completely blank, just what looked like a blank field to me, right? And so we're looking across the street and then she starts to narrate for me what she remembered about what used to be there. There was a church building, there was a bakery, and she was describing the smells that would come from the bakery and how as a little girl, because she was living in the house that she grew up in, that she would walk over to the bakery, pay 25 cents for whatever she's getting and then come back home. And in that way, those memories meant something because she knew what the neighborhood was like when there were more food businesses, more grocery store options, more restaurant options. It was a way that framed her critique of what was not present in the contemporary food landscape. So it's this way that people understood what they, not just what they needed, but what they deserved in part because of these very tangible memories that they could recall about how the space had
1: changed. So in your chapter, in the food justice world, but not of it, you use the phrase Black placemaking. Can you explain to us or share with us what does Black placemaking mean?
0: Sure. Yeah. So uh, the phrase placemaking more broadly and Black placemaking shows up in a lot of different ways and a lot of different texts. Sociologists use it quite a lot. In my work, I'm thinking about placemaking as the ways that people use particularly public space to create community or to fill a need. So Black placemaking includes the kinds of strategies and negotiations that Black people are doing to try to transform or be in relation to various forms of space, including public space. And in my my work, because a lot of it has to do with food, I'm very interested in things like how food circulates in public space, but also how food becomes one of the markers for how people claim and define a particular kind of space.
1: Mm, okay. So can you share an example of that in relation to the mobile food entrepreneurship that you researched in DC?
0: Yeah, I was very interested in this one food truck in particular that was showing up in Deanwood while I was doing food work. And part of why I was interested in it is because it wasn't... At, at a time when food trucks were maybe burgeoning, but certainly I want to say the aesthetics of food trucks were changing such that they were like, there's an aesthetics to them that was prettier and and more well put together in a certain kind of way. This truck stood out to me because it wasn't over the top in terms of design like other other food trucks that I had encountered. So what was interesting to me about it though, in terms of placemaking was the very deliberate ways that the Food truck itself was trying to serve this particular neighborhood and the ways that the food truck was doing that because of a very real gap in the neighborhood food system. So it would show up at these sports games, um, for example, at the community rec center, but also people had the name and the number of the person who owned the truck and could hire him out for private parties or ask him to make deliveries there was a very real communal feel to what he was doing, which I was fascinated by because it contrasted so much from the ways that like food trucks congregate around the National Mall, for example, Mm -hmm. or in other spaces in DC. And it made it very clear to me that while I'm sure this was in part for profit because he was making money, like it's, it's a mobile business, that his ideas of profit, or at least the way it looked to me, were still encapsulated within this broader spectrum of this is my neighborhood, these are my folks, and I'm here to serve these particular people.
1: That's great. And that's a different, I feel like a much different ethos than what we see from other food trucks. I think the ones that you were referring to that are highly stylized, um, yeah. only going to the very, very like popular places where they know they're going to make a lot of money. And at
0: the same time, the other thing that fascinates me about food trucks is that they are a somewhat modern spin on food vending that is largely criminalized in some places, right? Like food vending that is done by mostly brown, immigrant, sometimes Black people in large cities like New York or San Francisco and not universally criminalized, but also always under surveillance. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there is something very fascinating about the ways food trucks metaphorically, but also literally move around the city in ways that are different from like a street vendor.
1: Yeah, definitely. So you're just speaking or talking about things being criminalized and I'm wondering if you could give us sort of like big picture impacts on the individual and community when the sort of placemaking is criminalized.
0: Yeah. Yes. (laughs) So one of the things that I really like to stress to people is that we live in a time right now where there's hyper focus on the police as there should be, right? Policing, Mm -hmm. Criminalization. I'm with all of that. I think we should be paying attention to these things. I'm firmly in the defund and abolish camp. And the thing that is super fascinating to me about these conversations, which I think of as an intellectual and organizing challenge, is that often we disconnect the work that policing and criminalization does from the work that is happening within the food system. But Mm -hmm. mostly the same communities that are impacted by over-policing are the same communities that are facing the kinds of surveillance that comes with gentrification, for example, or the kinds of food insecurity that people are impacted by on a daily basis. The same neighborhoods that have over-policing likely have fewer grocery stores compared to their whiter counterparts. All of these things are true. And so- The over-policing and the food insecurity and the lack of food access, they're sharing the same space. Mm -hmm. And so when I've been doing work, it is not uncommon. I might ask questions about food and I might hear responses about security guards at the supermarket. Right. Or I might hear responses about feeling unsafe walking down the street, you know? And so I, I think I just want to impress upon listeners, perhaps, that We have a real opportunity, though I do think it's a challenge to link up food stuff, particularly food justice work, with the work that is happening around policing because it's similar. Also, a very specific Mm -hmm. kind of thing to food that is another form of policing that perhaps people might gravitate toward is even thinking about the work of health. And I don't write and talk a lot about health um, in my own work, but what black folks consume is is under so much surveillance oh my goodness (laughs) under the guise of wanting people to be quote-unquote healthy and yet there is so little room for self-determination around what health and healthiness means for communities right we Mm -hmm. use these so-called standard measures that um are then used to, to whether intentionally or not are then used to demonize people, like use against people, right? You know, and so it just reinforces and reaffirms this kind of association of blackness with lack, blackness with lack of education, lack Mm -hmm. of knowledge, um, not knowing what to do. And so in that way, I think that's where this kind of criminalization has an impact on individuals. And I, I wrote about this in my first book's introduction, but part of the reason why I didn't write about health very much in that book is in my first few weeks or months of field work, many people thought I was a nutritionist and I was there to tell them what to eat.
1: Mm-hmm. Or that I was,
0: you know, and I and I understood that impulse being a black person because black communities are oversampled for research that is about like unwellness.
1: Right. Right. Which then
0: just kind of keeps putting the emphasis on the individual body, right? Rather yeah. than like the kind of systems and structures that are producing all of these kinds of problems, social problems that people right. are interested in.
1: Right. Like let's talk about the individual's consumption as opposed to like not having well-paying jobs or grocery yes. stores in your neighborhood or like yes. junk food companies marketing towards you specifically. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Or even things like how hard lobbyists for particular food corporations have fought against particular kinds of labeling for food, for example. Mm-hmm. So it's, there's, there's always this irony for me around hearing people talk about, or even hint at maybe, maybe we could just teach them how to eat better, or maybe they don't know any better. You know, people say this on one hand and, I, and on the other hand, I'm like, wow, but we have whole companies that understand that if people had the information that they needed, they might make different choices. And so exactly. they block. All of us from having easy access to information. So you know, there's a way that corporate control of the food system gets lost when we zero in so much on the individual.
1: Hmm. Hmm. Um, I want to go back to just around placemaking and criminalization. When I was reading your chapter, it just made me think so much about Lake Merritt. I live in Oakland, California, mm-hmm. and I don't know if you're familiar with Lake Merritt at all. I am I mean
0: I'm familiar enough. Yeah. I, I know it's it's a beautiful space and I know black people like to gather there. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> yeah, precisely. I feel like Lake Merritt is a space of black placemaking and has been for decades and it's it's become even more important I feel like for the culture as black people are being forced or pushed out of Oakland. Mm. Um, and a couple of years ago a group started a 510 party, which is the area code here just to show that Black people were still here and occupying space. And, um, and I don't know if you remember, if you heard of the Barbecue Becky incident? Yep. yep. <laughs> right, yeah, when a woman called the cops on a Black man who was barbecuing at the lake, which is also right. ridiculous. But it turned to this beautiful weekly barbecuing while Black party around the lake, and it, the area exploded with gatherings and Black entrepreneurship. I thought yep. that was so cool. And then it experienced a resurgence again during COVID, um, and I thought that was also beautiful because there were so many more vendors out there, and I felt like it became an economic lifeline for people during the pandemic. And there has been so many angry calls from residents in the neighborhood. It's an affluent – It's you have to have a lot of money, basically, to live near the lake. Um, yeah. So many calls to city council and complaints to criminalize gathering over there, criminalize the vending – Because of noise and trash. Yeah. It's really, really frustrating (laughs) in this time where everyone's protesting and saying, like, we want less police. And then for people to be like, but actually keep policing these people who are gathering.
0: (laughs) Yes. I think this is the thing, right? Like, everyone's right or use of public space isn't celebrated or allowed. And Mm -hmm. this is, and we see this in moments like, the 510 party, for example, or moments like Don't Mute DC, when the resident calls and complains about the store playing go-go music, and then that erupts into this larger protest that is not about music, but about gentrification and and a right to public space, and who gets to decide what it means to take up public space. And so for me, it's like... I. I have this dream project that will probably never get done, although I kind of, like, want to do it. And if anyone is listening and want to help me figure it out, let me know. Mm-hmm. I want to do this project on Black family reunions
1: because I... I love that idea. I don't even know I what do. it is. but
0: <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know what it is either. But there is something about Black family reunions, particularly those ones that happen in, like, city parks, et cetera, et cetera, that really fascinates me. There's the food aspect of it, but there's also this aspect of transforming a literal space into like a space of Black joy that is very, very fascinating to me. And I'm kind of in love with family reunions generally. Yeah. So um, I think that's, you know, what you're hitting on is the criminalization, but also like the ways whiteness tries to reinforce itself through legitimizing the use of police to put black people in their so-called place, put Mm -hmm. us back in our place, you know? And it happens again, like it happens with barbecues. It happens in, I don't know if you remember the story a few years ago, maybe it was more like a Twitter conversation a few years ago where black people were describing all these times they would be in Whole Foods and be followed, for example.
1: Oh my God. Yeah.
0: People are just trying to grocery shop. Right. And they're being followed in the grocery store. So it happens in so many different registers. And I think the thing about food for me that has always been so beneficial for looking at larger questions is that most people like to at least think about food as just being about the body and nutrition. And so it becomes this very useful way to make connections to larger questions around community, belonging, racism, whatever it is, like, I think food becomes a lens that allows us to think bigger. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, that's why I partially got into food is because it connects to literally everything. And you can use it as kind of the Trojan horse to talk about all of these other issues that people may not be interested in or are opposed to talking about. But you can do it through food. Um, so I was raised by a Korean woman. I'm a daughter of an immigrant and my, my dad is black. And I feel like throughout my whole life, I've heard a lot around like, start your own business. You have to rely on yourself basically Mm -hmm. to get through it. And, and even like, I like to cook and I'll be like, well, why don't you just start like a food business? Like be your own boss. And I feel like that's a message that comes through for a lot of people, um, is to be an entrepreneur and to rely on yourself. And I feel like there are limits to entrepreneurship and self-reliance. Um mm-hmm. can you share an example that you've come across in your research that exemplifies those limits?
0: Yeah, like I think I think I want to say something very very broadly first, which is mm-hmm. that when I was writing black geographies and using self-reliance as kind of a a metaphor, but also this through line in the book, I was really worried that people would read it as being overly celebratory. And so Mm. I'm glad that people kind of catch on by the end of the book that for me, self-reliance is a tool. And yet that tool does not overcome capitalism or white supremacy or patriarchy or all those things. Like it carves a path, but it, it is not what destroys. And I'm thinking about the example of Darren in that chapter from Black Food Matters. He had a fantastic idea, but what he didn't have was capital, right? He didn't have the infrastructure to be able to build out a business that really the way he describes it looks something like what an Uber eats or a DoorDash or something is now, except on a very, very hyper-local level. I think the problem sometimes often particularly with black business owners is is access to capital and access to capital access to money to fund the building of your business is it's 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 hard it's hard like whether it's through loans or you've got people investing in you right like it's very very difficult
1: mm-hmm and is there something beyond self-reliance that you think or that folks can strive for? And what does that look like? Yeah,
0: I mean, I think part of the reason I'm very drawn to abolition is not only because of what it means for how we might reimagine what we call our criminal justice system now but like what i think of is like the abolishment of that but reimagining things like public safety and 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 different forms of like holding each other within community is that to realize the goals of abolition we also have to think about how how might we reimagine our food system in a way that where We're not overly reliant on corporate control, for example, or Mm -hmm. how do we reimagine our school systems that are not so determined by how much a family makes or things like that, right? Mm -hmm. And so self-reliance, I think, gets us by in the meantime, but the kind of work we should be aspiring to, I think, really fits within this abolition model which Ruth Wilson Gilmore would say, it requires us to change, rethink and change everything. And I think in that rethinking and changing of everything, for me, what is super central is this unlearning, the very individualistic nature that is required of us to operate under capitalism. To thrive in the way that I think is important for us to thrive, I think we take some of the seeds that come out in in the book, in my book, which is that people really believed in this community part, like the self was an individual, that self always meant community. And I think there's something powerful about that. And so for me, I think there's a question around how do we scale that up so that that what's happening in these individual communities and these desires are connected to large structural changes. And so um, I don't know. I don't think self-reliance is not, not important. I do think it's important. Mm-hmm. I, I do also think that like the kinds of things that people talked about in my book, I just keep thinking about how so many of those things are dependent on a very radically different economic and political structure So to realize the goals of self or community reliance, for it to be something that is stable and scalable in a certain kind of way, I think it requires us to practice different economic and political arrangements.
1: Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for bringing in that abolitionist lens into this as well. I feel like that is a piece that It's like sticky mentally, and I'm still trying to like fully unravel, or I don't know if I'm ever going to fully unravel it, but try to like unravel it more and to connect it more for myself, and then also just more broadly speaking. I think it's it's so important and so necessary.
0: I know people like to, you know, some people identify as abolitionists, and I think that's a really important kind of identity marker for some people. I like to talk about my commitment to abolition, like the principles and the practice of abolition, because I... I also like this idea of being in process that I am still unlearning and learning certain things. And, and so it's been a process. And I like to think of it as a process. I think it's a beautiful process. I think it's sometimes a painful process. And nevertheless, I do not think that the work of knowing what abolition will create has to be complete. Right. I think there's something about thinking about process that reminds me that I don't have to know everything to be committed to these principles that I know to be true, not just know to be true, but my study of history and philosophy and the world around me and just Black life, I know that they are necessary
1: mm-hmm. for us to ever be able to thrive in the ways that we really, truly deserve. Mm-hmm. And I think so many people do get hung up on that, like what the end goal, what the end will look like. Um, even if it is values aligned with them. And I I think it's important to, it doesn't fully, I mean, I guess maybe it matters, but you also have to just do the work regardless.
0: Yeah, I think that's it, right? You kind of have to be in process. And I think quite often about Robin Kelly's introduction to his book, Freedom Dreams, because in it, he talks about how when we're engaged in this work, it is not only about the transformation of the world. There is also a transformation of the self Mm-hmm. that has to happen. It is necessary for these kinds of like big, large transformations that we're interested in. And so that's what appeals to me about the concept of practice, that in the practice, I should also be changed. I should also be submitting to the the process of thinking how where I am today may not be the same place that I am a year from now, or even five days from now, who knows, right? Mm-hmm. But that, But I'm in the flow of that. I'm submitting to that possibility of transformation for myself. Because we could burn all this down tomorrow, capitalism could be destroyed, all these things could could happen. And the question for me is always, though, have we or are we willing to do the kinds of necessary individual and collective work so that when these things are destroyed, we never reproduce the same kind of
1: violence. Right. Beautiful. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Real Food Reads. Next up, we have Inflamed by Dr. Rupa, Maria, and Raj Patel. Make sure you subscribe to Real Food Media wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want more information about our work or any of the books we feature, go to www.realfoodmedia.org.